Welcome to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman, a collaborative podcast with Pass It On Network. This program is brought to you by all of Community Services. Seniors deserve to have a fulfilling life with dignity and respect, but as we transition into our elderhood years, this doesn't always happen. Join us today as we discuss some of the most important issues that seniors face and provide much-needed answers to your questions. Now, here is Phyllis Amon. Welcome to Senior Straight Talk, presenting informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. I'm Phyllis Amon, your host. The show, which began in September of 2019, was formerly known as Voices for Elder Care Advocacy, and the library of all of the episodes can be found on the Voice America Empowerment Channel under the name Senior Straight Talk. They can also be downloaded on popular podcast platforms. The show is now also syndicated on the Voice America Influencers Channel. So please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. I have two courses which you can find on my website at www.phyllisaymanassociates.com for those listeners who are what I say are in SOS mode, stressed, overwhelmed, and stretched. Resilience Toolbox Secrets will help you capture the three R's, recharge, reset, and recommit. And family members considering taking on the role of caregiver or those just beginning the caregiver journey can find valuable information in my latest course, A Caregiving Guide for Caregivers, The Basics. Look out for my new course, Coming Alive with Music and Communicating Effectively with Persons Having Dementia, who I am proud to say I created with Dan Cullen, founder of Music and Memory and Right to Music. And my latest book, Dignity and Respect, Are Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve, is available on Amazon in both paperback and ebook formats. The book addresses critical information about how we care for and treat our elder citizens in our families, our communities, in nursing homes, and assisted living residences. I surely hope you'll purchase a copy and encourage your friends and colleagues to do the same. I anticipate an audio version of the book in the near future, and I appreciate your support and hope you'll spread the word on this all-important topic. Seniors Straight Talk is proud of the collaborative partnership with the Pass It On Network, a global peer learning network for positive aging advocates and a member of the United Nations Open-Ended Working Group on Aging. Seniors Straight Talk and the Pass It On Network will continue bringing our listeners informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. And I'm so glad to welcome Olive Community Services, a nonprofit organization in Fullerton, California, as a sponsor. Olive Community Services is dedicated to providing culturally appropriate services to the diverse senior population. And I'm very grateful to Olive President Rubina Chaudhry and the entire team at Olive for their continued support. And before we begin, I have to thank Peter DeGear of DeGear Therapy Services, who is a colleague and consultant specializing in rehabilitation therapy in nursing homes. And now I am so proud to interview uh, our guest today and to introduce him to our listeners, um, who I met just a few weeks ago, Bob Kramer, who is very well known in the industry and a thought leader. He's a founder and fellow of Nexus Insights, a thought leadership platform dedicated to the dissemination of ideas and models that challenge the status quo and contribute to the transformation of housing and aging services for older adults. 
Mr. Kramer is also co-founder, former CEO, and now strategic advisor at the National Investment Center for Seniors Housing and Care, known as NIC. He is broadly recognized as one of senior living's most influential and high-profile thought leaders and connectors. With over 35 years of industry leadership, he has earned the reputation of agent provocateur in the seniors housing and care industry. He's been described as an ice cutter and scout in identifying industries and trends that will disrupt the future of seniors ho senior housing, aging services, and aging more broadly. And there's a lot more to say about Bob Kramer, but I'd like to introduce him and give him the opportunity to talk a little bit about um, what else he can share with us about his background and his initiatives. So welcome, Bob. I'm so thrilled to have you here today. Thanks so much, uh, Phyllis. I'm delighted and honored to be able to be your guest uh, on the program today and very much looking forward to our discussion. Yeah, well, we, we have had some spirited conversations uh, right before we started and also uh, when we first met. And um, I have to say, I, I, you're kind of a man after my own heart because I certainly consider myself a, um, a disruptor of sorts in the, all the nursing homes that I worked in. I was, I was usually looked upon that way as um, mm -hmm. here she comes again and what is she going to tell us and what do we need to do differently? But, um, you know, for our listeners, do you want to describe a little bit more about Nick and Nexus so they have an idea about your initiatives sure. in each of these organizations? Yeah. Uh, well, Nexus, Nexus Insights, uh, the key is in the, the very word Nexus. It's about, you know, it's about the, the, the intersection of uh, industries the intersection of trends, the intersections of ideas, and ultimately the intersection of people. So I've, you know, I'm one of 13 fellows. They're very diverse in their backgrounds. Some are entrepreneurs, some are CEOs, uh, some are, are researchers, uh, policymakers. So, but they share a common commitment uh, that we can do better. We can do better in terms of aging services. We can do better in terms of how we think about housing, how we think about healthcare, how we think about personal care. And, but most importantly, how we think about the role of older adults in society. And what I like to talk about that it's a, it's a two-way street. We've gotten into a sort of helplessness dependency model. And in, and in doing that, we, we basically have missed the key point which is folks are aspirational no matter what their age, no matter what their, their, their mobility status or even their level of cognitive function. And uh, older adults have so much to contribute. We've seen that during this pandemic. And they also bring expertise, experience, and resiliency because they've been there before. Yeah, and, absolutely. And so rather than this paradigm of sort of helpless, uh, helpless hopeless, and dependent, and we're here to sort of entertain you while you go on this inexorable decline into irrelevancy. Uh, you know, I, I think that that is a broken paradigm and that we can do a heck of a lot better. So 
Nexus, again, we're not a consultancy. Uh, we're not an advocacy, advocacy or special interest group. We're really a thought leadership platform of people I've sort of gathered together. I've always respected them. Many of them I've had fierce debates with. But what I love about them is their passion. I know right. they're for real, that they're committed, that we can do better. And so whether it's Dr. Bill Thomas, the founder of Eden Alternative and Greenhouse and Minka and so forth, uh, or, or whether it's David Grabowski, whom I know you've had on at your show as a guest a number of times, uh, whether it's Ann Tumlinson, who started daughterhood.org, uh, whether it's Kelsey Millard, who, who uh, is the CEO of Sitka, which is a startup in asynchronous te telehealth. It's just, uh, so it's a fun group. But what we're committed to is uh, unvarnished uh, uh, insights and provocative dialogue mm. that will push people out of their comfort zone, but we think also provide uh, new models and, and, and disruptive ideas for how we can think about the future. And we've got two big things that are sort of driving <laughs> disruption and what I'd call disruptive innovation, using mm. the, the phrase that Clay Christensen, whom we lost this past year, a Harvard uh, Business School professor. But the two big things are, first of all, the pandemic, which has just changed so many things in healthcare, in long-term care, uh, in senior care, and secondly, a very new customer coming, namely the boomers. Mm -hmm. They've been our customer as shoppers, so to speak, looking for settings for their parents, but they've not been our customers in terms of resonance, and quite frankly, they don't want to be. <laughs> for and sure. So we have to think about what that means. Now, NIC, the National Investment Center for Seniors Housing and Care, I started, I first got into this sector as a state legislator mm -hmm. in the early 1980s, which when, when I was a member of the, of the, of the uh, Maryland State House and uh, State uh, uh, House branch, and then Speaker, now U.S. Senator Ben Cardin, I was known as a consumer rights advocate. He called me up, asked me to be on a task force to rewrite the CCRC regs in Maryland. I put my hand over the phone, no cell phones in those days. <laughs> I ate, what the heck's a CCRC? I've never heard the phrase. And, uh, and soon I learned a lot. And, uh, uh, and then uh, two months later, I had two admirals walk into my office. And, you know, when you're a 32-year-old freshman legislator and you represent the, the uh, capital of Maryland, Annapolis, which is the home of the U.S. Naval Academy, and two admirals, you come into your office, you do what I did. I stood up. I said, yes, sir. And they said, son, our buddies and I want to build ourselves a retirement community. We need your help. And that today is Ginger Cove. I spoke at their groundbreaking. And, uh, uh, but again, personal learning. So that's how I got into it. But when I got into it as a policymaker, as a state legislator, I realized this field was going to grow, but right. America was unprepared for, the, for increased longevity. They were unprepared for the gains in longevity of life expectancies at, in 1900 of 47 and in 2000 of 78. Right. And so that to me, I saw that not only was this going to be an explosive field, but there was going to be an enormous need for private sector capital. I did not believe that public dollars alone were going to be able to solve this. Right. 
Right. I just want to interject. I had a conversation earlier today um, with a young gal who's doing research in this area. And I was saying that I don't think anybody was prepared, as you say, for, for the longevity, let's say, revolution. But when there, I think there are ethical conversations that really need to be had because you know, there's this idea that people are older. And, and as with COVID, we've heard many people that have passed away or families connected with that were in the, mm. or they couldn't connect with. Now they reconnected in their 80s and 90s. But with the advent of science, uh, people are living longer. So uh, what are the choices? Are we, we don't have any more scientific breakthroughs? I mean, if we, um, we're still looking for cures for cancer, we're still looking for cures for other things. In, indeed, if we had those breakthroughs, those people, as well as many other people where there have been scientific advancements in medicine, will be living longer, which will therefore increase the population. So I think there are, you know, very ethical conversations to be had around this issue. No question. And certainly some of those discussions were kicked off by uh... Uh, Ezekiel Emanuel's piece in Atlantic that's where he's he was 58 I think at the time and he said he didn't he didn't want to live past 75 because right. he was saying that his 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 being a positive contributor to society he, he he sort of felt that after 75 um you know no uh, take me off the stage obviously you'd remove an awful lot of uh leading officials in Washington from the president <laughs> The speaker, uh, uh, and so, so and the, not quite yet the majority leader. He was my classmate at Harvard. So, but anyway, uh, you'd remove a lot of folks. But I think the point here, Phyllis, is we talk so much about the longevity economy, the longevity revolution. As I looked at my friends, I'm a sort of a, I'm a leading edge boomer, um, right. born shortly after the end of World War II. Um, People don't want a longevity revolution. They want a vitality revolution. Agree. So the key is many of our friends, the sheer thought of living till 99, if, if my health span or my vitality span and my wealth span don't match my lifespan, that's a drag. Right. And so I think what boomers are interested in is how do I maintain vitality? Right. And they're, look, they're looking for housing and services and, and programs that are going to enable them to stay vital and to stay engaged and to not be, in a sense, parked into a, a segregated community for those old people. Right. They want to stay vital. They want to stay connected. Doesn't mean they necessarily want to be working full time, though many will be working in right. one way or another, well into their 70s and 80s and beyond. But again, I think the key concept here has to be one of vitality. And then coupled with that, it's also financial. It's well spent. Oh, and, absolutely. And for many people, it sounds like a curse to have long 20 additional years of longevity. But if those 20 years are very poor compromised health and mobility and lack of finances, that doesn't sound attractive. Right. And I, I'm, for many people who are living in nursing home environments, uh, that's, that's the status. And because of that, and because they're dependent financially on reimbursement dollars from the federal government, which 
you and I have briefly talked about and many other people have as well, aren't substantial reimbursement dollars. They are relegated to a, a situation, you know, or a life, I'll say. I, I really don't call it living, uh, working in 50 nursing homes. And, and I'm sure anybody who's been in a nursing home would look and say, this isn't really living. Um, so they're relegated to this kind of existence. But I think something that COVID has brought to light especially um, more recently as, as people are getting vaccinated and you're seeing families reunited with their loved ones, their parents, their grandparents, is that there is uh, a lot of feeling within families about the older people in their families, but it's society as a whole looking at older people that doesn't see the value that way, but families see the value of those people. Well, unfortunately, we tend to see the value when it's our grandparents right. or our parents, but we don't carry that over. We make an exception for, for our family members, right. but we don't carry it over more broadly. And the reality too is, as another of our Nexus fellows has coined the phrase solo agent and solo ager, Sarah, Sarah Geber. And, uh, the reality, too, is that, um, that boomers are far more likely to not have family or to have less family and to have family living further away. Right. And when they do have family, those adult children are overwhelmingly in the workforce. Right. So, again, what, what drove the growth of assisted living in, in the 1990s was, was not investment dollars and, and Paul and Terry Claussen and Sunrise. It was the boomer daughter who was now in the workforce. Right. And when suddenly her parents needed care, she didn't want to leave her job. But the thought of putting mom in a nursing home, she was going to live with too much guilt. Right. And along came came uh, assisted living with a gorgeous chandelier, a curved staircase, right. uh, 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 Queen Anne furniture and carpet. And it was you would never want the resident to use that staircase. Right. But it wasn't designed to please the resident. It was for the adult daughter. Right, exactly. So she didn't need to feel guilty about keeping her job because this was a place mom could feel at home. And that was the original both promise and premise of private pay senior living. I, I, for I many, will, it delivered very well. I, I will say that on a personal note, because I've worked in so many nursing homes and my children obviously have heard the stories of all these different nursing homes in which I've worked, and most of them are not great stories. Um, very recently, a few months ago, uh, I'm divorced, and my daughter mentioned to me that her father is uh, starting to have difficulty, and she, she thinks he may not be able to live on his own that mm -hmm. much longer, or he's starting to have memory issues, and I think he's even becoming nervous about some of those issues. And so uh, she and her husband bought a house about a year and a half ago. And she was telling me how, you know, maybe she could uh, do something with the basement and, and he would live mm -hmm. there. And I, um, you know, I was asking her about that. And mm -hmm. she said, um, well, after not, not that she doesn't know about nursing homes, but mm -hmm. certainly knowing it intimately from what I've heard, what I've told her, uh, she said, I, I, I could never see myself doing that. And I think, but, but what I tell people is, even though you may not think that you're going to do that, and people make promises, and there are 
familial expectations, cultural, religious, all kinds of things, sometimes that time does come. So if it does come, how are we going to ensure that those environments are respectful and dignified and provide quality care and, and, and continue quality of life? Because people deserve that, as you said, no matter what stage they're at. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. First of all, let's make a distinction. When we talk about nursing homes, there are two uh, types of residents in nursing homes. What you've been talking about describes long-term care, long-stay residents who are overwhelmingly there uh, in part because it's the only place the government will pay their room and board. Correct. And that is a long-stay, long-term care resident paid by Medicaid. Right. Uh, Then there are short-stay residents paid by, in a few cases, commercial insurance, but usually Medicare or Medicare Advantage. Right. And those... They're, the nursing home isn't their home. They're going home from there. Even if home is assisted living, they're not staying. They're there for rehabilitation. Right. What is also called post-acute care. Right. They're there for a stay of, you know, five days to, to usually not more than 30 days. And then they're going, they're, they're going home. In all likelihood. Right. In, in all likelihood. And today, those numbers keep coming down. Right. I mean, you know, I see the numbers every year and the, num- the post-acute length of stay is getting shorter and shorter and right. shorter. And many don't, I mean, you know, uh, there are an awful lot of luxurious hospital wings and an awful lot of luxurious nursing home wings that were built with the expectation of all the boomers going there to get their body parts replaced. Right. Joint exactly. replacement. And the reality is, A, those procedures are increasingly done on an outpatient basis, not in a hospital. And B, you're often going home directly. Correct. Unless you've got a lot of other uh, uh, comorbidities. You're not going to a nursing home setting at all. You're going home with home health care. Correct. Uh, and so forth. So those things. But coming back to your, to your fundamental question, for those for long-term care, what are we going to do? I think there are two pieces to this those that are now in nursing homes. One is those that are only there because of that's the only place the government will pay for them to be. We need to get them out and they don't need 24 hour right. oversight. We need to get them out of there. I agree. Get them into what's called home and community based services. Correct. Whether that's a PACE program and other models such as that. Right. We need to do things such as we need to get those folks out. But For those folks that because of frailty, because of lack of family, uh, because of finances, lack of finances, and the last thing I mentioned, lack of having a home. Right. Fastest growing group of homeless in the United States over the last year has been those over 55. Correct. So, um, but for that group, what are we going to do? I think there are several things. One, the industry will not get more money, nor should it get more money, without greater transparency. Right now, it doesn't have, there's not credibility. And that credibility will only come with more transparency and accountability. And uh, David, David Grabowski, Charlene Harrington, Michael Wasserman, and others have written a very good piece on that, uh, uh, about that, and a proposal for that. At the same time, Uh, we're going to have to have increased funding for uh, that Medicaid long stay. In most states, you chronically underfund that Medicaid stay. 
Right. And so it creates these perverse incentives that you and I have talked about before, where, gee, if they go to the hospital for three nights, then they come back there on Medicare, and that pays at least two and a half times right. for Medicaid. You know, and very few nursing homes can survive just on Medicaid rates. It's virtually well, impossible. And so we have to pay more, but there has to be confidence those dollars are going to go to improve the quality of care, which means more staff and better wages and benefits and training for, for, for current staff and uh, not go to, in a sense, line corporate coffer, coffers or go into subsidiary-related companies or whatever. Right. The third piece I'd mention is with, if there's going to be greater transparency for the, uh, uh, in terms of ownership structures and dollar flows, there's always go also going to be, have to be some targeted liability uh, protection. Why? Because otherwise, all those additional dollars will go to uh, increased cost of care because of it'll go to defense attorneys' pockets. It'll oh, go absolutely. To attorneys pockets, and it'll go to insurance companies and their premiums. And no one wants to see additional dollars go into the long-term care setting, but end up in any of those three parties' pockets. Absolutely. So, it, you know, what I would say is we have a lot of simple solutions that sound appealing, more money, more transparency, more regulation, but each of them are simplistic solutions. Right. We have to weave these things together if we really want to take advantage of this moment right now and improve conditions. The reality is we're going to continue to need nursing homes, but most of the nursing homes out there today were built for a, uh, were, were, were built in the old board and care model. They weren't right. built for the high acuity, complex medical care resident who needs 24 hour care every day. So we need, we need investment in those buildings or tear them down and build new ones. And we need investment in the technology and finally the staffing. But we've got to know that the dollars that come from the public sector are going to be used in that way. I, I agree. In some other way. Uh, I agree. And, and we, uh, before we go to break, um, we had talked about this briefly beforehand, which is in, in some of these um, um, ownership models, there, there are many layers mm -hmm. of, um, of people who, uh, to whom the, the funds are disseminated. I'll, I'll say that. And, and some of it, uh, maybe it's not the crux of the issue, but if they look at those, uh, some of those, um, those structures, I think they would see that there, there are changes that can be made and those dollars can be put back into the care for the resident and, and paying staff a, a living wage. But let's uh, go to break and when we come back, we'll continue this great conversation with Bob Kramer. And uh, so we'll be right back on CU Straight Talk. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Phyllis Amon, owner of Phyllis Amon Associates, provides strategic solutions to families seeking care for their loved ones and coaches them to become more effective advocates. Her expertise comes from working in over 45 nursing homes. Phyllis, known for her passion, empathy, high-quality care standards, and quality life for older adults, is an experienced educator, speaker, and trainer. 
She's bridged the gap from healthcare to public and private sector businesses on topics from communication, caregiving, empathy, and novel approaches to team building and leadership. All of Community Services is a 501c3 that provides culturally appropriate services to seniors, their family, and the community. Through their interactive programs, Olive engages participants physically and mentally with a focus on building strength, mobility, and mental health. To learn more, get involved, or make a donation, visit olivecs.org. Together, let's live, learn, and thrive. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com You are tuned in to Senior Straight Talk with Phyllis Heyman. If you'd like to leave us a question or comment about our program, please feel free to email the host at phyllis at seniorstraighttalk.com. Now back to Senior Straight Talk. Welcome back to Senior Street Talk. I'm here having a very lively and spirited conversation with, with uh, Bob Kramer. And before we went, we were talking about uh, funding and Medicaid and, um, you know, thinking about long-term care and what's going to be available for boomers moving forward. But all of this has really come to light. A spotlight has been shown on it because of COVID. Not that it wasn't there before. It has existed for a very long time. But COVID has really, really shown a spotlight on the issue and, and on older people, not just on nursing homes, but about the people in nursing homes and how that may impact our attitudes towards older people and wanting to care for older people. So take it away, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's certainly, I would say that the entire uh, senior housing and long-term care field has suddenly been, been put center stage in the spotlight as a result of COVID. And obviously, uh, it hasn't always been a pretty spotlight. It's been a black eye for the industry as a whole, without question. And winning back uh, customers is going to be a challenge for the industry. But I'd say several things, I think, have been learned through this. Um, one is uh, the role of transparency. As I was saying earlier, um, you, the foundation for trust and credibility is transparency. Whether it's transparency about uh, uh, number of COVID cases among staff and residents and deaths, whether it's transparency about PPE supplies, personal protective equipment, whether it's transparency about vaccines. And, you know, is my mom liable to be exposed to a staff member who hasn't been vaccinated? Right. Uh, and uh, and beyond that, it's 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 as we were talking about earlier, it's 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 uh, transparency about ownership structures. It's transparency about, you know, uh, what kind of pay, uh, what are the rates, but also what kind of pay the staff uh, 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 get. So transparency, I think, is critical and uh, companies that. Uh, maintain trust the best were those that communicated frequently. They communicated not just by email, but uh, by, base, by, by video and by live interaction uh, online. And a second area I would say is, uh, is the whole, much of healthcare, but, as, but especially senior living has had to come kicking and screaming into the 21st century world of digital. Mm -hmm. As I like to say about seniors housing, 
We used to believe in seniors housing. Many operators seem to believe that by, you know, if you ask them, what do you do to meet my mom's uh, 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 medical care needs? Well, uh, we have a van there. It has a lift and uh, we'll take her to her doctor's appointments. Right. And at night we have a great relationship with the local paramedics. Right. Well, that will flunk the course right, going absolutely. forward for the future. And so now seniors know that uh, health services and monitoring of chronic conditions can be that can be brought to them where they live. And they're going to demand that and they're going to expect that. Absolutely. I, I've been, um, I just want to interject that I've been speaking with a couple of people who I know in the industry, um, not owners necessarily, although I know a couple of those, but consultants. And, <coughs> and it's really at this juncture, if you want to think of it as a business, and it is a business, uh, it has a, a branding issue. They, they have a branding problem, right? And they, they really... Um, well, I would say part of that is, and again... Uh, when you talk about senior housing, uh, whether it's assisted living, whether it's memory care, whether it's independent living or life plan communities, also known as continuing care retirement communities, what's happened is with the possible exception of what are called entrance fee life plan communities, the industry, in a sense, has followed the growing uh, acuity level of its incoming residents. And as a result, it's more and more sold care and not lifestyle. Right. And ultimately, a lifestyle, an engaged lifestyle, an aspirational lifestyle, a human connection lifestyle. That's ultimately the value proposition of senior living done best. Right. And it'll be absolutely critical for the future for the boomers because they are not going to accept a declinist segregation uh, sort of you know, they're not going to accept the idea that that uh, senior living sort of brings apartheid to aging. And so, I just don't think they'll they'll buy that. Now, there may still be communities that are age restricted in the sense of but it's age restricted for 12 hours a day, not 24. Right. So I, I just um, interesting that what you just said, and I almost lost my train of thought here, but. One, one of the, the roles that, that I really want to fulfill is, uh, one of my goals, I should say, is to really inspire a national conversation. I mean, at the forefront of the conversation, just like we're now having race conversations because of a, a horrible event that happened, uh, which really kind of brought it to the forefront. And even though COVID has done that in a way, it's still not front and center the same way. I am glad that the media is continuing to keep the conversation alive. It's not like it's a passing, passing issue. Uh, I think the Boston Globe had an, ish, um, um, an article a little while ago, the New York Times had one. Uh, so they're keeping the, the, uh, this, the, the, um, the, the uh, subject alive, but I really believe it's, uh, I, I referenced the movie Network uh, for those people who have seen the movie, it's many years ago, but uh, he stands up and he says, I'm mad as hell and I can't take it anymore. And I think it's not until just what you say, if the boomers finally stand up and say, we will not accept this. This is not acceptable. And that's not already happening. There are already new models being, de being, being developed and being delivered because the reality is we're wired for human connection. Right. Look at one of the benefits that's come out, out through the pandemic. 
there is now more real empathy between 20-year-olds and 80-year-olds. Why? Because 20-year-olds have had for the first time to experience physical, social isolation and loneliness, and it stinks, and they don't like it. And they never could understand before how hard it might be to be a senior, whether you're living in your your apartment or uh, or you're living in a senior living community to how much you craved that human connection, that sense of, 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 of connection and purpose and engagement. And so um, to me, that's really encouraging uh, in talking because I lecture a lot at the college and, and graduate school level. And I've been really excited that there's now more understanding right. by uh, young people this age of, oh, yeah, I understand why loneliness and social isolation is a killer. Right. You know, and, and the other thing with that is as much as we are fearful of congregate settings, we long to get back to them. Oh, yes. It's a kind of a contract. So, so for those that say that they think that the notion of a congregate uh, 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 setting for seniors is, is finished with COVID, that's like saying college dorms are finished, uh, <laughs> apartment buildings are finished, bars are finished, right. and indoor dining is finished. Right. No, we all can't wait to get back to it. Right, exactly. Wait till we're vaccinated and we feel safe in doing it again. Right. And so I, I think... But again, coming back to sort of what has to change, basically, and this is unfortunately much of regulation reinforces this. We tend to measure and regulate things that are important, but they're not most important to the person, to the resident. For instance, you know, in, in, in senior living, we're experts at uh, how many activities of daily living, ADLs, do you need assistance with? And right. How many minutes a day? And right. how many chronic conditions do you have? Yeah, right. How many prescription drugs do you take? And how many over-the-counter? Right. Oh, yes. You know, what are your finances like? And can how long will you be able to afford to live here? Right. But no one wants to be defined by those statements. Well, correct. That's all the regulators, and too often even the marketers, Focus on right. What, what what we should be asking is, tell me. In co- moving into this community, what are your aspirations? Right. What Correct. are your goals? What right. do you feel you can bring and contribute to this community? What areas would you like to grow? Right. What would you like to accomplish? What so, things give you a sense of the Japanese have a fr- uh, a phrase ikigai, which literally translated is reason to get up for breakfast. Yep. Uh huh. And a, a congregate living done best or engagement for people of all ages gives them a reason to want to get up for breakfast, right. get up the next day. And that's the, 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 you know, we have to do more of that. You know, I, I've been saying for several years after first talking about it with Lisa Marsh Ryerson at the AARP Foundation, we need to retire the concept of activities directors. Oh, please. <laughs> that is because that is kind of, we're going to entertain you and keep right. you busy until you die. Oh. Rather, we need what's, what Lisa calls purpose matchmakers. Oh, I like what that. We, or- what we should be about is helping people connect with or reconnect or refire what gives them a sense of meaning, belonging, and right. purpose. And right. That- what we have to be about. If I, we want to fight ageism, 
that's one of the places you got to start. I agree. I call it um, engagement activities or community activities. Uh, the other term that's used is recreation director. So that's what people are doing. They're just sitting around. And um, if anybody has seen any of these quote unquote activities, you know, they do this bowling thing. They, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's just appalling. And some of it, I think, has well, not all of it has to do with mindset, but it depends on the mindset that's applied um, in, in the bigger picture. I'll, I'll give you an example. It depends also on the mindset of the person and how they see that role, no matter what the title, just like a person in uh, customer service, you know, that, that's an attitude. That's a, a way of thinking. That's a mindset. It's not a title or a department head, right? So, um, I can, I, you know, there, there's an ex, two examples that I have very recently. There was a gentleman who came to visit his wife every day in a nursing home. This is about a year or so ago. And this guy loved history. And he would ask all the staff members, do you know what happened today in, most of it was New York history, but some of it was, mm -hmm. you know, American history or even world history. And um, he just loved it. And if, if they didn't know, of course, he loved telling it to them. And so I said, why don't they ask this gentleman if he would love to, you know, have some kind of group? I mean, he stayed there about an hour and a half, two hours every day. Um, and, and maybe engage some of the other residents in the building and, you know, run some kind of Jeopardy challenge or history uh, class. There was another gentleman who was a resident, and he used to love to ask everybody if they knew the capitals of the different states. And, of course, there were many people from other countries working in this, in this particular building. And so he loved asking, educating them. I mean, I said, why not? Why not? Well, let's bring that around to the point. His yeah. passion, and, uh, but people aren't thinking about that. Well, not only that, but we need our elders to be engaged with us in the solutions to our society. I agree. Let me give you an example. There's a community, uh, a, quote, retirement community in Washington, D.C., and they, during the pandemic, they were seeing that you know, the stress level on their staff. And they asked them, you know, what can we do to help? And what, in other words, what, what concerns are you bringing to work? Right. And what came out was concern for their kids who right. were at home and were losing basically uh, months of their education, now more than a year. So what did they do? They said, well, gee, we got a lot of people living in this community. They don't have college degrees. They have masters. Some have PhDs. So they started a program to pair residents with the children of the staff. Right. And the residents then would get online and would engage with uh, students of the staff to help them to not fall so far behind. And to me, you know, we're going to, I, I think many boomers are going to be willing, just as they uh, participated in the 60s, are going to be willing to be part of that volunteerism that gives back. I agree. And that means in mentoring and teaching and in caregiving. We're going to need them desperately in caregiving. So I would, I would say that if we were looking at, let's say, the impact of the pandemic on societal attitudes towards older adults, I would say that it, it really is two sides of a coin, right? Uh, there are people who, who, who there was, a, you know, 
apportioning of health care. There are some people who felt, you know, why do we need to vaccinate all these older people who are at the end of the journey? Uh, there's that attitude. Uh, I think it brought to light about how many older people are living in nursing homes. And then people say, why is all the money going to people who are just like, quote unquote, living out their days? Unfortunately, that's how they think of them. Um, but on the other hand, there are, have been positive impacts of the mm-hmm. COVID on, on societal attitudes, understanding that people have more value that uh, not, not only to, to their own families, but like in this greater sense, because those kids who receive the tutoring from those older people now have a different view of those older people and the value that they bring to the table. Absolutely. Another example is... Uh, uh, dining room servers oftentimes are high school students. Yes. But during the pandemic, they've had to bring the meals to the rooms of the seniors because right. they were quarantined in their rooms. Well, what happened in a number of homes is the students encountered the frustration that the uh, uh, seniors living alone in their room were having with getting online, with FaceTime or, or Zoom or whatever. And so they were able to help. And then the senior would start asking them questions. Gee, what are you studying? What would you like to do? And so countless relationships were were developed because of this between high school students, sophomore, junior, seniors, and residents in their 80s and 90s. Each had something the other learned from, valued, and profited from. That's what ultimately keeps one healthy. I agree. I have a purpose to get up. Gosh, I am so thrilled. This this kid, I you know, he's interested in history. Well, I know there's a whole bunch of folks here that live in this community. They're really into history. Coming back to your example, so right. you know, it's it's a different way of thinking, and um, you know, we tend to reinforce this sense of helplessness and that there's nothing that the that quote these folks have to give. You mentioned that one positive effect of the pandemic is it's shown a light on this and we're really concerned about the death rates. The reality is though, we've always had quarantines in nursing homes. It's mm-hmm. from the flu every year. Right. We've always had high death rates in nursing homes and it's been from the flu, but nobody cared. Correct. I, nobody gave a damn. You know, so I, much so that as has been pointed out, uh, for instance, in, in California, they don't even segregate those deaths by by age. It's adults and kids. Right. They care about kids. Right. But, you know, it's 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 the idea that pneumonia, influenza, it's kind of the old person's friend. Right. You know, I just want to say that uh, in all the nurse, I don't take the flu shot. I never have. That's a whole other discussion. So every year, I when I worked in nursing homes you know, on a more regular basis. And even now, if I go into a, a building, I have to sign that I don't take the flu shot. So I was always w- used to wearing these masks mm-hmm. uh, because, you know, that, that was part of the protocol if you didn't take the flu shot. Um, but I want to comment on something you just said. And I don't mean to get into this from a political point of view or a religious point of view. But So you just said about kids and older adults and something that struck me, and I think I wrote about this in in my last book. I think I I wrote a line about it, which is, and I'm not saying this right or wrong. I'm just saying that people will fight and to the death and kill people. And they have killed people over a few cells in a woman's body 
that they say are the beginning of life. I'm not saying it isn't. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that as a fact. However, here are people that are still alive, that are on this earth, that gave birth to the next generation, that have contributed to our society, growing our society, maybe fought wars and helped protect us uh, against, you know, in foreign soil. And, but we don't have the same concern for them. They're not... Well, as you know, many religious traditions get tripped up by inconsistencies and right. you put value on life in one place, but not in another. Right. Uh, you know, whether you believe it's, it's society's strength of a society is how it protects those that have the least voice. Right. Or the weakest or the most vulnerable. Uh, but I, I think the, coming back to the issue of ageism and, you know, the uncomfortable reality is that it's been easier for policymakers when people really, other than the direct family members, they really didn't want to know what happened to long stay residents and nursing right. homes. And they didn't want to, now part of it is that we don't like to face death as Americans at all and our own mortality. But, but beyond that, we have again, you know, we've had an evolving system. Yes, originally they were rest homes. They really started with faith-based institutions. Yes, the church they were. And synagogue. That's the origins of our whole Correct. rest homes, retirement homes, homes for the elders, uh, uh, you know, the sort of widows and orphans work. Faith-based. That's, that's where this whole sector began and yes. has all its roots. But, I, but having said that, as you pointed out, we now have people with multiple uh, chronic conditions who really need extensive care. Over, and the issue is, are we, you know, are we going to fund it? And we, yes, we have to be sure the dollars are really going to go to their care and not somewhere else, not to make some co corporate executive wealthy. Right. Uh, but at the same time, yeah, this is a bit of a test for us as a society. My concern, honestly, Phyllis, a year from now, will we have all moved on uh, and nothing right. will have really changed? Right. Well, that's my concern as well. Uh, right now, it's, it's a high-profile issue. Yep. The New York Times is writing about it constantly. The Post, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal, the Boston Globe, we're hearing about it on NPR. That's great. But, um, you know, will we really be willing to do the things that need to be done to actually make a difference so that we aren't uh, sitting here and you and I, you have me back on the show in a year and we go, how did we blow this opportunity? I agree. Add national attention. We had great concern by the public. Now they're more, you know, the, the policy makers are all concerned about what's polls the highest for the midterm elections. Right. Everybody's right. off to that. Right. And long-term care has been forgotten about because we now, we now have a vaccine and we can move on to other more pressing issues. You, you know, uh, shortly after the whole uh, hotspot, New York hotspot, and, and I think the California hotspot, uh, the, uh, the news cycle moved on from nursing homes to the election. And I wrote an article, I couldn't get, uh, I wrote an op-ed, I couldn't get it published anyplace. I tried many times, but uh, the title of it was Let's Not Forget Our Nursing Homes. Because during that period of time, it was all about the election, right? And, and uh, everything that went along with that. So it's really just what you're saying. And, uh, you know, so many times 
in recent years, we've had hurricanes, Hurricane Sandy, we had, you know, Harvey, we had different things. We had, um, uh, um, whatchamacallit, I, why can't I think of it? Katrina, in, mm -hmm. uh, right, in New Orleans. New Orleans yeah. and, and there's always a spotlight during those times on people in nursing homes and what happened to those people. But then the news cycle moves on. So it's just what you say. I'm concerned about that as well. Yes, now it's all about this, but are we now going to move to some other topic? And speaking as a, as a, a former state legislator, I, can, I feel I can say one of the dangers too is in a crisis, we usually do two things. Unfortunately, we look for someone to blame. Right. And if you're a policymaker, the easiest thing is to pass new mandates. Right. <laughs> new, tougher policies, tougher regulation, tougher enforcement. Um, and so we, 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 while saying that, yes, they're heroes, these frontline workers, we actually make their, their job even harder. Right. Because we burden them uh, with e even more process and more regulation. And it, 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 takes away time from actually providing oh, care. Right. And it doesn't effectively identify and either help poor operators to get better or close them down. Right. And, and, and so all I, they I do. I'm concerned oh. that right now with some of the recent stories and with the hearings coming up in DC, there'll be a, a, a cry for, in a sense, vengeance and we've got to punish the industry. Right. But the real losers, if we go that direction, will actually be the residents and those frontline staff. I agree. And the reality is, like you said, when there's more regulation and more requirements, so then everybody focuses on that. that that's what they're, that's, that's the only thing they're really thinking about. We have to make sure these, this paperwork is done, this is done, you know, all the rules and regulations are followed, but that has nothing to do with care of the person. And the person- has nothing really to do, as, as you're, I think, about to say, with quality of life. Right. nothing to do with person-centered, person-directed care. Correct. Basically, and, and a focus on regulation is almost always a focus on quality of care, and it goes to a checklist approach. Correct. And checklist approaches don't take the individual into consideration and their wishes and aspirations. And, and even if they do, it's really just, uh, I wrote an article uh, last year called person-centered care is more than a buzzword because there is person-centered care written all over the regulations now. And it's, it is, it's like a buzzword. You know, you check that off. Yes, we ask them what, what they like to eat and when they want to get up in the morning and blah, 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 blah. But is it really person-centered? Not really. It's, it's really kind of like a buzzword. So, but I, before we go, I want to ask you, because we, we talked about this briefly, and I think we've used interchangeably senior living and nursing homes. And I know that this is something that you want to talk about and explain that to differentiate between senior living and, and nurse, the nursing home sector. I think it's yeah. important for people to understand that differentiation. Yeah, again, uh, nursing homes, the largest characteristic is overwhelmingly the payer is government through either right. Medicare or Medicaid. And for long stay residents, most of them are there because of poverty, right? either lifelong or, as will be the case, unfortunately, for many boomers, having been forced to spend down into poverty because, again, it's the only place they could get their, 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 their room and board and care. Um, private pay senior living really came onto the scene. As I said, it has faith-based roots in, in the religious community, but it really uh, exploded onto the scene for one reason. 
And that was the boomer daughter who was now in the workforce. Right. In the 90s, assisted living, memory care, independent living, it exploded in its popularity because of boomer women who were now in the workforce. Traditionally, in the previous generations, they would have been home or gone home to provide the care. Now they're in the workforce. And so assisted living took off uh, as, a, as an alternative to that boomer daughter having to be at home. Did right. it fully realize its promise? No. I would say that the first generation of private pay seniors housing product was 1990 to 2020. The next generation of seniors housing product, private pay seniors housing product will be 2030 to 2060, serving the boomers. Before you serve the greatest generation, uh, define the experience the war. Next will serve the boomers, define the experience college. I thought 2020 to 2030 would be the slow transition. Then COVID happened, the first right. year of the decade. And it put an exclamation mark on the inadequacies and the failures of what we're offering in our present model. Right, absolutely. It's really sped up changes. And that excites me yeah. as, as a disruptor and as somebody who's excited about uh, uh, disruptive innovation. I mean, I, as I say to students all the time now on, on, at colleges and grad schools, what an exciting time right. to come into this field. Why? Because the demand is going to be off the charts. Right. There's going to be fewer, fewer kids to provide care. Right. But the customer doesn't want today's product. Right. They want something different. And, uh, and you know, I just want to say uh, a comment on something you just said. Uh, the, the words that you used in particular, where you said, you know, the customers won't have it and they want a different product. And what I tell people and families when I work with them and advise them that um, this is a business and every business needs customers. Mm -hmm. And so that you are in the driver's seat. I have been saying this. Remember the Hertz commercial? Uh, you and I can remember oh, yeah. that Hertz commercial from years ago. But um, I tell that to people. You are in the driver's seat. I know you think that because you're seeking care for yourself or your loved one, that you're at these people's mercy. But the reality is that you are in the driver's seat and that it's really up to you to demand better. And that's where I really want to inspire people to become more vocal, to become more effective advocates. Because as you said earlier, I think if people demand it, then it will, they will have to provide it. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the keys. I, I want to perhaps close on a note of, I think, one of the greatest challenges facing us as a nation will be um, what I have termed the forgotten middle, and that is middle-income elders. And particularly for the boomers, that'll be the single largest uh, uh, cohort uh, compared to low-income, high-income. And many of them falsely think Medicare pays for long-term care. <laughs> right. many, many of them do, have, do not have the savings, especially after trying to help kids with mortgages, uh, at college funding, so on and so forth. They don't have the savings. And uh, many of them right now don't realize that their lives will be forced to spend down to get on Medicaid. Right. And that means, for instance, we need creative programs that intervene with people before they spend down to Medicaid to enable them to manage their chronic conditions and not have, what happens is people let their health go because they're afraid they're going to run out of money. Right. So then by the time they qualify for Medicaid, they're in much worse shape health-wise. Right. They haven't managed their chronic conditions. 
they haven't done things to keep them uh, that can keep them vital in and body and mind. And so we have there. There are a lot of efforts now to develop pace type programs for middle income elders yep. and other things like this. There are efforts to do through home and community community based services through through what are called special needs programs and through Medicare Advantage programs. We need to support these efforts because we, you know, we've got a huge group that don't make enough to afford the private pay options out there today, right. but at the same time are not, don't qualify as poor to be eligible for Medicaid. Right. Shame on us if we don't address this group and come up with practical, meaningful solutions for them. And I- now's the time to do it. So, Bob, before we go, is there, if anybody wants to access uh, Nexus or the information that you have available. Uh, Just go to uh, nexusinsights.net, okay. www.nexusinsights.net, uh, and you'll find lots of information there. You can sign up for our uh, monthly newsletter, and, uh, but, and you'll also see what each of the 13 of us as fellows are doing, what we're writing about, what we're engaged in, and, and so forth. And then NIC, for those interested in that, is NIC.org, www.nic.org. Phyllis, thank you so much for having me. We could obviously continue this conversation a lot longer. You and I share a lot of common passions uh, and a few opinions along the way, right? <laughs> Yeah, nobody's ever accused me of not not having an opinion, as you can well tell, right? Yeah, and they call me an Asian provocateur for a reason. So, yeah, I uh, it, and I, I, uh, you're a man after my own heart. Talk about a disruptor, right? Uh, I, I, when I first, the first conversation I ever had with Bill Thomas, I'll just reference this, who wrote the foreword to Dignity and Respect, Our Aging Parents Getting What They Deserve. I told him, and I've told this story to many people, that in all the nursing homes I used to work in, they would say when I would come along to speak with the administrator or the director of nurses, and I like to bring attention to the elephant in the room, I would say, oh, they're saying to themselves, I would say this to them, here she comes again, what is she going to tell us? She wants us to do something different. Why can't she just go away? <laughs> you know, because I was always uh, had these same passions and beliefs and, and wanted things to be better for the people that were, I call residing, I won't say living, in those nursing homes. So, Well, we have a great opportunity now. I hope a year from now, if, if we have this conversation again, we'll be able to point to a lot of positive progress that's been made. Uh, me too. So in signing off, I just want to thank you so much for generously sharing your time. And I know you're a busy guy. So this was really good. Delighted to do it. Always good to have a, have a stimulating conversation like this about a topic that I care about passionately. So thank you for the opportunity, Phyllis. Uh, that's great. So please join us on our next episode of Senior Straight Talk for more informative conversations for the senior years of our lives. And this is Phyllis Amon saying goodbye for today. And please remember to like, click, and share our episodes. Until next time, stay safe, stay well, and stay tuned. Thank you for listening to Senior Straight Talk. Join your host, Phyllis Amon, again soon for another episode on the Voice America Empowerment Channel or your favorite podcast platforms.